grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Today we're going to be talking to Hilary, whose daughter was placed for adoption in 1962 in Christchurch, New Zealand. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Hilary, and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. It's a privilege. Hilary, can you start off by um, sharing some of your story with us? Well, where to start? It's such a long story of spanning more than 50 years. Um, it started when I was, I guess, a young girl, um, 16, fell in love with a, a lovely young man who was 18, an engineering student. Mm-hmm. And, of course, as night follows day, um, we became sexually involved and in those days, contraception was not available unless you were engaged to be married and could prove that and demonstrate that you had arrangements for the date of your wedding and all that sort of thing because oh, wow. contraception was withheld because there was a feeling that it would make women promiscuous. I mean, no. the heartache the heartache that that decision, which was made by the people who had us in their care, um, has left enormous scars across yeah. the world for hundreds of thousands of people, mothers and children who were separated at birth. Yeah. So anyway, when I found out I was pregnant um, uh, because my boyfriend was a, a student, you know, students talk, and he had a friend who, who knew, you know, a, a friendly chemist who could procure some little pink pills to, you know, get rid of the problem of pregnancy mm-hmm. it didn't quite happen like that and I, what I was given was a, a bottle of brown disgusting medicine I, I'm sure to this day it was syrup of Ipecac because every time I took it I vomited wow you know so it was horrible stuff I couldn't keep it down anyway the inevitable happened I realized that hey I'm not going to get out of this situation without my family's help I was living away from home as young people did in those days. We left school at 15. We were yeah. adults in inverted commas, you know. Mm. Um, so anyway, um, and and the other thing, I, I, I came to hate my boyfriend. I blamed him for the predicament I was in. I knew he'd get off scot-free. I knew I was left to carry the burden and whatever the consequences were. So I went home with my secret and I hid it for as long as I possibly could. I think I might have been about seven and a half months pregnant by the time my mother went, you know what, seriously, this kid's got something wrong with her and that lump is getting bigger. So um, I uh, finally confessed. I was working as a nurse aide at the time, which was all the employment I could get in the little town we lived in. And, of course, my mother was distraught. Uh, she said, I'm going to talk to Dr. Dawson and see what he can do. And, of course, there was nothing to be done. Yeah. But on the horns of a dilemma that was such a shame within a community, the worst thing that could happen to a family was to have a daughter sully the family reputation by getting pregnant. And in those days... um, you know, reputation was your currency. It was all you had when everybody had nothing. You know, it wasn't long after the 
end of the Second World War, 16 years afterwards, you know, people were still coming to grips with the horrors that had happened to them over five years of war uh, and before that the, the um, uh, recession. Um, it was just a, a horrible time when people didn't have anything. So your moral standing in the community was paramount and to, and to debt that in any way was unforgivable. Now, my parents were loving parents. My family were very close. I had three brothers and a sister. Um, and my, my parents were distraught. You know, my poor dad, I, I can still see his face when my mother told him. Anyway, the decision was made that I had to be sequestered to a home for naughty girls, unmarried mothers. And so I was sent to Christchurch to the Salvation Army home called Bethany in Parnell. It's not there anymore. I have a photograph of it. Um, and, you know, the loneliness of that decision, the loneliness of that journey for me, um, and the loneliness of giving birth to a child with strangers is not something anyone would want to take on voluntarily or any other way you know it was it was awful at a time when a girl needs her mum the most mm. I've just been through this with my own my second daughter who had a baby last August and I, I, I sort of thought then you know if only I could have had that experience I might have made different decisions or different decisions might have been made for me because I didn't have the power to make decisions yeah. um so yeah, I was sent away, sent away like all the girls who were sent away because we had to hide that shame because what would the neighbours think? It was it was horrible that the what the neighbours thought would affect my life so brutally. Yeah. For half a century, I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't confide in anyone. I couldn't raise the subject for discussion in my family. It was to be put away never to be spoken about again. Um, let's just put it all behind us and pretend nothing happened and we'll smile at the neighbours and everything will be fine. You don't put that kind of thing away. You don't put it behind you. But, you know, my mother, with all the best intentions in the world, and I don't blame her for a moment for this decision, it was what you did at the time. Um, the social mores were so different to now. So her best advice to me was, look, put all this behind you, darling, and one day some good man will come along and marry you in spite of your past. So, yeah, I did. I, I did get married to a nice man who, yeah. Anyway, that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> mm. All so, of the messages were about you'd done something wrong, weren't they? It was all. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, that led to a lifetime of never feeling good enough to be um, in society with anybody. Um, I, I was an outcast. I was, you know, aboard this awful secret, this huge lump that I carried around with me like a limpet. You know, um, it was... Just yeah. burdensome. What was your time like at Bethany, um, Hillary? Did they treat you well there? Look, I've got to say, in light of the information that I've gleaned since about the way girls were treated, uh, look, I was treated very well. Um, I was in a dorm with three other girls and we weren't allowed to talk about these things. We weren't allowed to give our names. The first name was fine but not your surname because it might have the, the power to identify you later on. And that was shameful. You didn't want to be identified as being a mother, um, you know, uh, uh, but we did talk about things. But, you know, we were so bloody naive. I can't believe how naive we were. But, you know, I had a sort of a camaraderie born of our mutual predicament uh, with the girls there. And we, we each had our little jobs to do in the, in the and Bethany, um, you know, one girl was responsible for cleaning the floors. 
Um, my job was window cleaning. Another girl would do help the cook um, with some interesting little experiments, like she put she put baking soda in the peas so that they would stay nice and green. Oh, yum! But <laughs> <laughs> they tasted bloody disgusting. But they were green, weren't they? They were green. <laughs> So the, the nursing home was segregated into two parts. So one part was for the naughty girls um, to wait for their babies, and the other half was for private patients who paid quite a lot of money to birth in such a nice, you know, caring sort of a place. Um, and it was. I mean, the nurses were lovely. They didn't, they didn't seem to be judgmental. The matron was a very kindly person. But, you know, we had a kind of a happiness, I suppose, um, and we accepted our fate. We tolerated our fate. We were kind of conditioned to it, I suppose, as as we were conditioned to one day giving up our babies. And that was that was horrendous. Yeah, I had a rough time. Uh, I um, I was in labour for about six days, you know, and eventually, you know, because in the Salvation Army mode, um, it was God's will that you waited until your time was right. You know, they weren't going to try and induce me or anything like that. Anyway, it worked, worked out really badly in the end. I had a huge hemorrhage and, you know, nearly died. And, you know, I was on my own. You know, I didn't have, I didn't have a parent to say, what are, you, what are you doing to my child? Why aren't you giving her this and why aren't you, the, you know, there was nobody there. Advocate. Yeah. No advocate. It was the loneliness of that experience that kind of still haunts me, really. You had you had your daughter. What what happened then? Oh well, I I sort of slept for about three days, four days, something like that. Um, they'd come and wake me up to give me food, and I'd have one mouthful, and I'd go back to sleep again because I was recovering from a traumatic birth, the loss of blood, um, and you know the emotional trauma. Um, so. You know, I, I, I don't recall the first few days at all, at all. Um, and they kind of left me. Um, and then eventually one day I woke up for a couple of hours and that was great, but I wasn't allowed to have visitors. My dad came to see me one day. Uh, I knew my mother would never come because she couldn't bear to see my daughter and not take her home. Yeah. So my father came and, and I, as it happens, we were allowed to, bottle feed our babies that was really rare yeah I was bottle feeding my baby when when my father arrived I didn't know he was coming and he was just he was just mortified to see his little girl with a baby you know I said do you want to hold her dad and he said no and I knew that he, he never would you know anyway um he, he was a loving dad, and my mother used to tell me about the times he cuddled his own baby. So he had such a warm body, you know, and the babies used to love to snuggle into him, and, and he was at peace and they were at peace, you know. Mm-hmm. But he never got that opportunity with my baby. Anyway, shit happened, you move on, and I tried to. On about day 10, um, the matron came to me and she said, we've made an appointment for you with the solicitor. And I said, what, why? She said, well, you need to sign the adoption papers. And um, it and wasn't you had conversations I, before that? You'd, you'd had conversations that that's where things were going? or Well, she sort of more or less one day sort of said, you know, are you giving your baby up? And and I said, well, I don't have any choice. There's no unemployment benefit. There's no single parent's benefit. There's nothing. And my parents had nothing. They, you know, another mouth to feed sort of thing was, and they weren't in good health. Um, my father died the year later. Um, so it was a very difficult situation, uh, compounded by what the frigging neighbours thought. Yeah. Anyway, um, so dutifully as I was, a dutiful daughter, I went along to the lawyer's office and I, I, by myself, by myself, I found the office and walked down this long corridor with brown 
doors with a glass panel in them, you know, with the writing on the window, Fred Smith, LLB, solicitor. Um, And I thought, there are no doors that say options. Nothing. You know, I'm going down a canyon here. There's no way out. There's no door marked options. Anyway, I went into the solicitor's office and it was about devoid of of warmth as he was. Um, And it was like cover up all the paperwork and just leave a little line down the bottom and you just sign there, girly. Um, And then his secretary was called in to witness my signature. And that was it. That was it. There was no birth certificate. There was no blaring of trumpets. There was no relief. There was nothing. Anyway, I left there and I stumbled down the steps into this weak, sunny day. And I felt so bloody empty. So empty, like my whole gut had been removed. Anyway, um, and the deed was done. It was. They said, you realise that this is irrevocable. And then as if I didn't understand that word, which I didn't, I'd never heard it before, the solicitor with a tone of condescension said, that means you can't go back. This is the end. And I just thought, well, okay, I didn't swear in those days, but if I did, I'd know what I'd have said. So somehow, I don't even remember this, but I I got back to Bethany and I started to pack my clothes and things and I thought I'll I'll go home because I know my parents will welcome me with open arms and they'll give me the love I really badly need right now. And... um, Anyway, within a couple of days, um, my friend Karen came rushing in and she said, they're coming, they're coming. I said, who's coming? She said, they're coming to take your baby. And I thought, oh, my God. And then I saw this black car coming up the driveway and I heard outside my door the muffled sounds of nurses and the rustle of their starch uniforms, the squeak of their shoes on the linoleum floor that went like a runway down the passageway. And I knew that was it. Anyway, the people got out of the car, big black car with billowing mud guards, and um, the baby was handed over to the mother and she looked at the baby and she smiled and she laughed with the nurses and she got into the car and they smiled and waved at the nurses and they drove off. And you got to see all of that. Pardon? And you got to see all of that. From my window. I wrote down the number plate of that car and I thought one day I'm going to find that bloody car, no matter what it takes, and I'm going to find my daughter. During the time I was in labour and before, I decided to knit a little soft toy for my baby. So I got the wool, it was white, and I knitted a little toy dog. And at night, when I was in pain, I used to sit up with the night nurse and we used to roll cotton wool balls and we'd chat about all sorts of things. She was the most delightful person. I can't remember what we talked about. We talked about a lot of things. I think she talked about my family a lot too. So we rolled cotton wool balls and we put them on the radiator because that expanded the cotton wool and it made it soft and fluffy and it was good for whatever they were using it for, you know, what swabbing injection sites or whatever it was, I don't know. So I got some of that cotton wool and I stuffed the little toy dog with that. Then I had this great idea. So on a piece of paper I wrote my name and my phone number and my address and all my details that I could And I stuffed all of those into the little toy dog. And I thought, one day my little girl will tear that bloody dog apart and she'll find that and she'll know that she's got a mother with a family. 
if it survives washing machine and whatever animal they've got at home, maybe another dog. But that never happened. And I never did pursue that car registration number. What was the point? I'd signed her away. I was told it was irrevocable. I accepted that. And that's the way it was. That's the way it was. Oh, dear, Hillary. <laughs> so you went back home after that and um, and tried to claw back life as it was? Yes. Um, and my parents were so sad. You know, they never really recovered from that. Yeah. Um, I, I think that contributed to my father's passing a year later when I was just 18. I lost so much. Yeah. Anyway, you know, I did what I was told. I got on with life. I tried to put it behind me. I got a job and, you know, I socialised a little bit, though I always felt awkward. I never felt I belonged to any particular group or clan or or young set or whatever, I always felt like an outcast. Um, I never told people what had happened to me, you know, that was that was just forbidden, revolting. So, yeah, I kind of got on with life and as best I could, you know, it was, it was shit, but, you know, thank God drugs weren't around then. Thank God drugs weren't around then. I might have been tempted. Um, I never felt Self-pity, don't get me wrong. I never, ever felt self-pity. I still don't. I feel enormous sadness. I don't feel self-pity. Um, so, you know, what, what do you do? How do you fill up 30 years, 20 years, 10 years? I did it somehow. I did have fun. I did have boyfriends. I did go out. I did things that other girls did, but there was always that hollowness to my existence that I could never really quite understand. Um, and, you know, I got married at 25 and that lasted seven years. Um, you know, he knew, I did explain it all, that he accepted that it was all very nice. But, it, you know, it was just, um, it was, it was a, 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 an action I wasn't sort of prepared for in a way, not but emotionally. Um, that I hadn't accepted myself. So how could I be a full whole person to another person? You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, um, we divorced. We never had children. I didn't ever want children. I had a puppy. Um, so children were not part of the plan. And um, anyway, I, I moved to Brisbane. I'd been overseas and that sort of thing, and and um, I moved around a lot. And I, you know, they say you never leave your past behind; you take it with you. That's so true. You can't run away. So anyway, I moved to Brisbane, and um, I went to work for a company. It was a really very um, very interesting company, and I loved my job. And I met this other young man who was. A bit of a Robert Redford lookalike, I've got to say. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, he, was, he was a bit gorgeous. He still is a bit gorgeous, even though we've been married for 40-plus years. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I met him and uh, he had just come out of a, an unhappy an unhappy um, marriage in some ways. And we kind of got together and I thought, oh, my gosh, yes the calm, the peace, and, of course, I told him all about my, my awful past. And I said to him one day, I'd like to find her. Oh, he said, you don't want to go doing that. I said, why not? He said, you don't want to go reopening old wounds. I said, God damn it, you don't even know that those wounds never healed. Still a raw, gaping gash in my life, you know. It never, ever healed. And now that I felt secure with him, I felt I could reach out and he was so accepting. 
and you know that that kind of gave me confidence yeah um anyway I sort of kind of put that on the back burner until until later, you know, I, I do believe there's a timeliness to life and things happen at the time they were meant to happen. You know, there's a passage in the Bible, there's a season, that, you know, a time for grief and a time for woe and a time for this and a time for that, but I can't remember it all, but it's in Luke in the Bible. Not that I'm religious, I'm not. Um, but it spoke to me about, you know, when is the right time to do something? It's the universe that tells you now is the right time. So anyway, um, three or so years after after we met, I was we had a, a daughter, um, and what a contrast! She was born into a world of love and warmth and flowers and visitors and handshakes and congratulations and. You know, she looks like you, she's got your nose, you know, all of that sort of thing that I never had with my first child. Never had that. Um, and I thought, oh, my God, I've died and gone to heaven. Uh, you know, because when a woman has a child, there's so much celebration in the family and among friends and even strangers as they share her joy and the wonderful miracle of a new life. People stop you on the street and go, oh, is that a little girl? Oh, isn't she cute? But when a woman loses a child, either through stillbirth or marriage, she's the recipient of comfort and understanding in the love of family and friends and even strangers. As she mourns a child, she will never know. But when an unmarried mother relinquishes her baby for adoption, there's nothing. No flowers, no handshakes, no hugs, no cooing at the baby, no welcome to the world, no congratulations, no ribbing about familial likeness. No commiserations. There are none of the normal social rituals to welcome a child. No baby announcement. No baby shower. No christening ceremony. Not even a birth certificate. There's absolutely no societal validation of the mother's experience. Quite simply, there's nothing. In fact, it is worse than nothing. Because in relinquishing a baby, girls like me did everything that a hostile and hypocritical society deemed necessary, but at the same time we were made to feel ashamed and we were punished. We were punished to, to be silent. That was our punishment for the wrong that you had done. Mothers are psychologically programmed to nurture children, yet in that circumstance we were denied our rights. Just get on with your life and don't look back. When we were um, preparing to do this interview, you were saying to me that um, you can't think of a better word to use than relinquish, but it doesn't fit what your experience was. No, it doesn't fit. There's no word for a mother who's given up a child. You know, they say relinquishing mother, but I never relinquished my child. She was taken from me, taken from me by my own ignorance, the conditions at the time, the lack of financial assistance, the, the moral um, imposition of what the bloody neighbours thought. You know, she I, w I didn't willingly give, give up my child. I was preconditioned to it. Um, you know, it, society took my child from me. It wasn't a willing act activity. So when people say relinquishing mother, I, I go, no, you know, it's a horrible word. It says birth mother. I'm, a, I'm not a birth mother. I'm a bloody mother. <laughs> there, are no, there are no words for these things in our language, and that's very frustrating, very frustrating. So, anyway, what can you do about it? So you had your, um, your daughter, and I know this, um, this sparked the search for you, didn't it? It did, actually. Um, when I looked at my new baby and I went, oh, my God, I had this awful churning in my gut. Whatever happened to my other baby? I'll never know. And that, that was so hard to 
come to terms with now that I had what I thought I most wanted in all the world. And probably what I most wanted in all the world was my first baby. Anyway, um, so my second baby really seriously underscored all the longing and wanting and needing um, that you could ever imagine. And I resolved that one day I would find her, whatever. Even if she didn't want me, at least I could see her and tell her I'm sorry. So I waited a while until the universe was ready for me. And um, then when she was about three, I thought, right, I'm going to have this conversation with my husband. And I did. And, you know, he was he was a devil's advocate. What if she doesn't want to see you? Tick, I thought of that. What, what if she's, you know, not turned out very well and blames you for everything? Tick, I thought of that. So, you know, I kind of then thought, well, oh, my gosh. Um, you know, the, his parents considered they didn't know anything about this and um, my family, you know, most of them still alive and, I thought, no, I can't, I can't do something selfish for me when it's going to affect so many other people. So I packed my thoughts, my dreams and ambitions away in a little metaphorical suitcase in the back of the wardrobe, and I thought, one day I'm going to drag you out. And I did. It was a couple of years later. Um, you know, uh, the past casts long shadows, doesn't it? And I, and I, I couldn't. I found it impossible to suppress thoughts of her as I watched my little girl growing up. You know, it was pretty tough. And I thought about things like, you know, uninvited questions raised the specter. You know, like things like, was she being well looked after? Was she happy? Did she love stories, music and swimming like my little girl? Was she crazy about pasta and garlic? Did her little bottom wiggle from side to side as she tottered down the hallway? Was she holding someone else's hand and calling her mummy? You know, um, it was tough, but I lived in hope of one day finding her, you know, hope, that thing of amazing power. Anyway, in 1987, I came to my final decision to find my daughter. I was vacuuming the house and I was in the bedroom and my little girl was playing and I heard this interview on TV with a woman who had found her child and she said, um, oh, my gosh, it was such a relief to find my child. And I thought, oh, my God, and I turned the vacuum cleaner off and I sat on the bed and I'm, I was mesmerised listening to this woman and, and she had talked about the role Jigsaw had in her finding her child. And I went, oh, my God, there's the answer. The universe has put the answer in my hand. And I find this throughout life. You know, this is a wonderful thing. I don't, I don't know what you want to call it, but a lot of people call it different things. But that's what I call it. So anyway, um, I thought there is hope. You know, that person found their child. And why couldn't I do the same? So it was in February 1987 that I sat down to write to Jigsaw in Wellington in New Zealand, um, which was difficult because I hadn't found it. I hadn't, didn't have a birth certificate or anything like that. So I just wrote and I said, you know, I had this baby born in, in, in Christchurch. Her name was Karen Lee. Um, Tralala. So then I got a note back from them 10 days later saying, oh, enclosed, please find a birth link pamphlet. You can apply to state welfare for help. Adoption laws in New Zealand now allow you to trace your daughter. And it was signed by a Peggy. And I went, oh, my God, I've done the right thing. For once in my life, I've done the right thing. <laughs> anyway, so the BirthLink brochure included information on where to write for further assistance. So I wrote to the New Zealand Department of Social Welfare a couple of weeks later when I'd plucked up the courage and 
I got a standard reply saying, you know, we've received your inform you, we've received your letter, and uh, um, uh, before we can proceed, we've got to check with some other government department, and, and you know, we'll let you know. Oh, we've got to check and see if there's a, a veto recorded, because in those days, if you didn't want to be found, you could put a veto on your record, and that was it. You had no chance, no chance at all. So I thought. Oh my God, please don't put another barrier in my way. Anyway, then I got a letter back not long afterwards that said, you know, no, no veto has been recorded by your daughter. And I thought, oh, maybe she wants to find me. Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, so, you know, given that she was born in New Zealand, I was now in Brisbane and I had been in England and I lived in Germany and I traveled and you know, God knows, I was born in Ireland, you know, so God knows where I could have been, so where would she start? Anyway, so I, I continued in this process and then eventually on in March, a month later, um, I was advised by the Department of Justice that they had located a birth certificate for a Karen Lee but couldn't, couldn't give me a certificate because it was subject to an adoption order. So another barrier in my way. Um, and I'm thinking, well, what the hell do I do now? It's subject to an adoption order. I don't know what her name is or how to find her or who's got her or what her name might be on the records or what do I do now? So that was in, um, in March. And as I pondered this latest barrier, about a month later, a life-changing event occurred. The phone rang and it was my mother. And she sounded a bit odd. And she said, how are you, darling? And I said, well, Mum, thank you. She said, um, are you sure you're okay? Yes, of course I'm okay. So she said, um, I've got some news for you. And I said, oh, my God, she's found out she's got cancer or something awful. And I said, Mum, what is it? What is it? She said, well, darling, will you please sit down? I said, Mum, I'm fine. I'm standing up. I'm fine. She said, no, please sit down. And I said, well, what, what do you have to tell me, Mum? She said, I've got a letter. I've received a letter. She said, I'll read it to you. So she started reading. And it was from my long-lost daughter. No. Through her, she'd found a copy of her original birth certificate and my family name was quite unusual and she'd put together the pieces and figured that there's not too many people in New Zealand with that surname um, and she pursued it and she wrote to my mother, the first person she wrote to. So I, I just stood there. I, I couldn't move. And the tears just streamed down my face. It was just the most incredible thing. And unfortunately at the time, my, my parents-in-law were staying with us for the weekend. And my, my father-in-law looked at me. He was very concerned. He looked at me like, are you okay? And I went, gave him the thumbs up sign and nodded. And, um, of course, I couldn't tell him. And I had to hang on to that little nugget of news <laughs> till my husband came home. And in his usual fashion, he'd stride down the hallway, ripping his tie off as he went, and then, you know, go into the bedroom, get his shirt and pants off and put on a pair of stubbies and a T-shirt and come out and rip the top of a beer. And I followed him into the bedroom. I said, guess what, guess what, guess what? I told him. And he looked at me and he just gave me a big hug. It was so gorgeous. <laughs> And then over dinner, he said, I think this calls for a bottle of champagne. And he toasted to absent family members. And I just thought, oh, this is as good as it gets, really, isn't it? Yeah. You know, this is as good as it gets. So uh, I was just, I, I, you couldn't take the smile off my face, seriously. It was just brilliant. Oh, so anyway, okay. yeah, it was incredible. I mean, we were looking for each other at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, that was a huge step towards us 
developing a relationship, that we were looking for each other at the same time. We meant, you know, it meant that much to us. And here we were, you know, um, it wasn't a unilateral decision, it was a mutual decision. And finding your way back to each other. Finding our way back to each other after 25 years of separation. So um, I asked my mother for her address and phone number and all that. She didn't have a phone number, I don't think. So I I wrote to her and, um, you know, poured out my heart and said, look, you know, I just hope we can have a relationship. It's up to you, tra-la-la. And... um, uh, we we did talk on the phone, and I wrote to her after that. I, w- I went to New Zealand to see my mother, and I wrote to her and I, I said, I can hardly find words to describe my joy in talking with you. It has long been my wish to find you again. Not a day has gone by since your birth when I haven't thought about you, especially in October. I've always felt a strong bond with you despite our separation. So, and on it went. So then... Um, not long after that, she sent me a copy of her adoptive birth certificate with her family name, new family name and all that sort of thing on it. And and her, her mother and father had given her a name. It wasn't the one that I gave her, but it was a nice name. And I thought, that's, that's fine. Yeah. And um, she then struggled with the difficulty of telling her parents. So her mother was kind and magnanimous and generous and just lovely. And she wrote to Peck to my daughter once and said um, I've often thought of Hillary, only never knew her name and I'm indebted to her for such a lovely daughter and if she and her husband and their little girl will come into our lives in some way, we will all be the richer for it. We will always be happy to hear and know how this new relationship and new dimension in your life develops and maybe if the time is right when we come to see you sometime then maybe we can all meet together isn't that amazing? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It shows a woman of comfort. And yeah. here we have two mothers with different pasts and different perspectives. In a subsequent letter she wrote to my, my daughter, she wrote, um, 25 years of loving care couldn't be wiped out, but 25 years of longing and guilt must be quietly and lovingly repaired. You know, I, I think yeah. about that and I think of how lucky my daughter was to have that mother. She had a very good experience. She met most of my family, my brothers, sisters, nieces, all of them. Um, but I still, and, and we, we, we did see each other. She she flew to Brisbane a couple of times. I flew to Melbourne to see her and catch up with some of her friends, flew down for her birthday that year. And... Um, you know, we were getting along famously. We wrote to each other all the time. We hung out for each other's letters. Uh, we rang, and we rang each other when we could. It was expensive in those days to make phone calls interstate. Yeah. yeah. And there was no Skype. You know, there was no none of that. Um, but it was a lovely uh, honeymoon, if you like, where everything was beautiful and. Uh, you know, it was like a bubble that couldn't last and honeymoons never last. Um, you know, it was uh, floating on cloud nine 24-7. It's unreal, unreal. Um, it's an amazing feeling, isn't it? Yeah, and she she felt the same. You know, she felt this elation that uh, I've never felt in my life before and she probably hasn't before or since. Um, anyway, we decided, you know, it was going to be time to meet and she flew here and we met and it was, we met at Brisbane Airport, which in those days was a Nissan hut, you know, like a, um, a big arched corrugated building. I think it was built by the Americans during the war. That was before the new airport was built. And she came through the doors and I thought, oh, my God, that's her. The, the last person off the plane, I thought she was about to go turn around and go back again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, she uh, walked through the doors and I just, I couldn't believe it. I just trembled from head to foot, trembled. And I grappled for something intelligent to say to her and, 
you know what came out of my mouth? Would you like would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> <laughs> and she said yes. <laughs> so we sat in this empty listen hut with the red checkered tiled floor <laughs> and a cup of tea. I, I couldn't have I couldn't have driven home anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I was so shaken. It was absolutely the most amazing thing, you know. Yeah. And I looked at her and I thought, oh, my God. You know. Anyway, I, I kind of struggled with how do I feel about this total stranger? You know, here we had this sort of honeymoon thing going on and catching up. It's absolute excitement, you know, better than any soap opera on TV, I tell you. It's really, you know, it's got the makings of it right there. So anyway, um, you know, I sort of, I thought, you know, how do I feel about her? Yes, it's exciting and it's wonderful and, you know, we talked candidly about everything and but I thought I'm supposed to feel love and I don't feel the same as I feel for my little second little girl. It's not that I don't love her. But I don't know that I feel love. Strange. And I, I, I struggled with that. I really struggled with that. You know, I sort of thought, oh, we're going to meet and I'm going to love her and it's going to be all, you know, uh, racing through tall ryegrass with strains of Beethoven playing in the You know, it's not like that. Sorry. Um. But I, I, I struggled with it so much that I kind of felt, what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And eventually I did go and see a psychologist. And I've since read in Nancy Varia's books about the role of the forgotten mother, you know, the, the, the what of a better word, the natural mother. Um, and how each adopted child has two mothers. Well, that's really hard to comprehend for anyone. Um, I also struggled with the fact that she never called me mum. And later on, when people would refer to me as as her mum, she would kind of bristle and go quiet. And, you know, I don't blame her. But somehow I had an expectation that she would call me mum. Yeah. And I, I guess that was one of the things that I had to come to terms with. I did meet her mother and father. Uh, they came to Brisbane on a cruise um, in 1988. And uh, we met and we chatted and she said to me, she'd tell me something little about Penny when she was growing up. And then she would leave that little bit of information with me to process and maybe ask questions about. She was very, very diplomatic and gentle and kind. And I found it really hard to ask questions about her past. Yeah. Because that was not my area, not my right to know what had happened. Uh, It was like... For 25 years, I didn't know her. Therefore, why could I be interested? But I knew that we were going to forge our own memories together and that would kind of make up for it. And I still find it a bit hard to talk about her growing up because I wasn't part of it. So there you go. A lot of... um letting go of expectations and and being willing to build something completely new that you haven't that you hadn't expected it to be isn't it yeah yeah but you know I I think we we really have a a strong bond I I try to see her every every week she lives she moved to Brisbane in 1988 yeah uh, which I was delighted about but you know again that brought its own little problems 
um, because we didn't have that background knowledge of each other. You know, as a kid growing up, you know, you say things to your kids and they kind of get it because they've got the background knowledge, the mise-en-scene, if you like, if you're talking about movies. But, you know, with with an inverted commas stranger, you don't have that background. So things can be misinterpreted or not fully understood. Anyway. Uh, uh, look, I, I'm I'm delighted. I'm happy. I'm I'm uh, reunited with my daughter. That's the thing I wanted most in life. Um, and she's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person. She's kind and gentle and intelligent. Um, she's everything a, a mother could want from from her child. Yeah. I'm proud to say, and we we do have a great relationship. Um, she's got two sons who call me Nana. That's just music to my ears. Yeah. Um, you know, we see each other frequently. Not we're not on each other's on each other's doorsteps every second day, but we see each other each week or fortnight. And uh, she's married to a wonderful man, and you know, it's unbelievably good. Unbelievably good. Yeah, there's a few hiccups along the way, but. That's life, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. Do yeah. you feel like you've made peace with your experience, Hillary? Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And that has freed me. It has freed me and I've come out. Um, I, I decided I needed to write about my experience and I've written 50,000 words of a memoir. Um, and when I started writing it, I thought, now, where do I begin? And I thought, well, research is always a good start. I went to the library, State Library, and I started researching about adoption and, you know, because I really didn't know much about it. You know, despite the fact that I was a prime player in an adoption scenario, I knew nothing about it. Isn't that strange? Not to me, it's not strange. <laughs> I totally understand so, what you're saying. I, I went to the State Library and I started researching. Well, holy guacamole. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I was not in this on my own. I was one of thousands of people who had the same emotions that I did, the same pain that I did, the same experiences I did. and. I, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm in the library. I'm meant to be quiet. I just want to crawl under this desk and howl my eyes out in relief that I'm not in this on my own. There's so many other people, but we've all been punished by our silence. And I don't want to be silent anymore. I want to tell the world. Stuff it. And, you know, that that in itself began the, began the um, march to freedom if you like yeah and um the more I wrote well it was painful because in in hiding my past I had sequestered it and I had tried to forget and I found it extremely difficult to remember details extremely difficult difficult to recapture emotions. That was a very, very hard thing to write about. But little by little, I teased out everything and examined it forensically and came to a kind of an equilibrium um, about what had happened. It was, it was, it was seriously painful delving into the past like that. And, reaching in and pulling out those twin evils of shame and guilt and holding them up to the light. Um, and forcing them to reveal themselves in ways that I could never have done before. This is about five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and and treat them as the imposters they were in my life. Yeah. So um 
Yeah, I, you know, I used to I used to have a notebook by my bed. And I'd write down all the things that you know in the middle of the night. I'd write down all the things, and I'd be up at four o'clock in the morning and at the computer, and because I'd thought about something else, and I, this went on and on for what, four years or something, mm-hmm. three years maybe, um, and teased it all out. And it was then when I looked at the the facts um, that I discovered that my guilt all those years and signing away my child's life while I was a minor um, was not really um, my doing but the forces of society at the time, the forces of lack of money and all that that I talked about before. So that that freed me enormously. Really, you know, it wasn't that I was absolving myself of fault or blame. I wasn't. But it helped me to understand what had happened and put it into a context that I'd never been able to do before. So that was that was a, a revelation to me that probably had the biggest benefit in setting me free. Um, and, you know, how do you explain that you've got a daughter when you can't admit to having given birth? You know, that was a dichotomy that I, I couldn't really come to terms with. And people would say to me, oh, so your older daughter, um, were you married before? And I used to say, oh, yes, I was married before, which is true. I wasn't lying about it. I don't like telling lies. Um, so I'd let people join their own dots, you know. So oh, she was married before, therefore that was, you know, that that ch- child was the child of that marriage. Mm. So you know, and then I thought, you know what, I'm sick of this, and I thought I'm coming out. So I set up a page to have a person set up a web page for me, and I emailed all of my friends and explained. But I didn't really explain. I told them. This is the situation in my life, either accepted or not, but there it is. That's it. Yeah. And to my absolute and utter amazement, they all just said, aren't you incredible? You're very brave, blah, blah, blah. I didn't want all the platitudes. But, you know, the fact that it didn't change a thing, my friends still love me. It changed nothing. And I went, you know what, 50 years of secrecy that I have been burdened with and it's made not a jot of difference to the people who care about me. Once you set yourself free, you don't have to hide anymore. And there's a lot of peace in that, yeah. And healing healing doesn't mean that, you know, it goes the freedom goes a long way to healing, but the healing doesn't mean that the past never happened. Yeah. It just means that the damage doesn't control your life anymore. Yeah. And that's a well, very, very powerful thing. Yeah. Well, we'll have to unfortunately call um pull a close to this interview because we've gone a little bit over time. But um thank you so much for sharing your story with us this morning, Hilary. Um it was really emotional and I really appreciate appreciate your candor and um your vulnerability and sharing it in the way that you have. And I know a lot of people will um, will get a lot from hearing your story. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And good luck to everybody else who's looking for their long-lost child. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. 
A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Mm-hmm.